Good morning. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. We begin with night two of the Democratic National Convention. Last night, Dr. Jill Biden spoke alongside her husband's official nomination as the Democratic nominee. We're seeing that our differences are precious and our similarities infinite. We have shown that the heart of this nation still beats with kindness and courage. That's the soul of America Joe Biden is fighting for now. Democrats are sending a clear message at their convention this week. The country is headed in the wrong direction, they argue, and Donald Trump is the reason why. But elections are never won just by standing against something. You also need to convince voters of what you stand for. So what exactly do Democrats want? Vox breaks down this year's party platform, which is essentially a wish list of policies and agendas that the Democrats would push to enact if they get elected. Now, this year's platform is an 80-page document. It covers everything from health care and the economy to climate change and criminal justice. Now, these plans are often viewed as a way to unite various factions of a party around a common set of beliefs and goals. Fifteen Democrats wrote the 2020 platform, and these were not just career politicians. We're mm -hmm. talking about union members and longtime aides and advisors to party leaders that helped draft this platform. And it's noteworthy that Bernie Sanders endorsed the platform, but it's definitely not as progressive as his base would like. As Vox reporter Andrew Prokop explains, the platform doesn't call for a lot of things that are important to the party's left, like Medicare for all or defunding the police or abolishing ICE. It doesn't support national legalization of marijuana, although it does call for decriminalization. And the platform does not propose a total ban on fracking. Even with Bernie's thumbs up, hundreds of his delegates voted no on this platform last night. But here's what the Democratic platform does support. It lays out a detailed plan to address the pandemic, including free testing, treatment and vaccines. And it proposes the creation of a public option for health insurance. This type of insurance would auto-enroll the lowest-income Americans without premiums. On climate change, the party is committing to investing in clean energy and has set a target goal to eliminate carbon pollution from power plants by 2035. But the platform falls short of the Green New Deal, which was introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In fact, Alexander Kaufman at HuffPost reported on Tuesday that despite the fact that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both pledged to end subsidies and tax breaks for oil and fossil fuel companies, the party quietly eliminated that goal from its written platform. And as far as your wallet is concerned, the Democrats want to raise the national minimum wage to $15 an hour, increase the amount of affordable housing, and significantly bump up the child tax credit. They also want to make college free for students whose families earn less than $125,000 a year. And community college under this plan would be completely tuition free. On immigration and foreign policy, Democrats renewed their calls for a clear pathway to citizenship for millions of people who are living in the U.S. illegally. And it calls for bringing America's longstanding wars to a, quote, responsible end. Here's an important caveat to all of this. As Vox explains, the platform's parties right are essentially aspirational. Yeah, it's like a vision board, a mood board even. Yeah, so if Biden takes the White House in November, he'll also need Democrats to win back the Senate. 
and they'd have to eliminate the filibuster in order to get most of this done. Mm -hmm. But you know that this type of tension has always existed in modern politics. And Vox quotes the late New York Governor Mario Cuomo, who famously said, You campaign in poetry, you govern in prose. Census workers are right now busy knocking on doors. Once a decade, the U.S. government tries to count the number of people living in every zip code in America. But this process is complicated. USA Today breaks down all the challenges facing the census count. It also lays out why so many people worry there may be a historic undercount. There's a pandemic, which, you know makes things harder. But before the coronavirus, back in 2018, President Trump tried to add a citizenship question to the census, which was ultimately rejected by the Supreme Court last year. But that legal fight took a long time. USA Today spoke to the director of a nonprofit group that works to improve civic engagement in the Latino community. And she said 50 percent of the people they've spoken to about this year's census still mistakenly think it asks about citizenship status. This is the kind of thing that can make people hesitate to fill out the census. Two things to keep in mind with the census. Someone can either reach out to you and physically count you, or you can self-report, which means you essentially count yourself and mail in a form or do it online. During the last census in 2010, census workers needed to visit 48 million houses in 10 weeks. But this year, they have more households and less time, six weeks to reach 56 million homes. And an undercount can affect a lot of things. It affects how federal funding is distributed for the next 10 years. That's money for things like schools and roads and hospitals. The count is also used to recalibrate congressional representation. A Pew Research Center study found Florida, Texas and California all stand to lose one congressional seat if people in those states who are living in the U.S. illegally are undercounted. But in communities of color and among immigrant groups, there are concerns the government will use this information against them, despite a federal law that specifically prohibits this from actually happening. So if you haven't done this yet, make sure that you fill out the census. You can do it online at www.census.gov. It only takes about five minutes. There's a humanitarian crisis right now in Iowa. People are living in tents or in houses that no longer have roofs or walls. Food, water, ice to keep insulin cold, all of these essential supplies are in high demand. Last week, a severe weather phenomenon called a derecho tore through the Midwest. 100-mile-per-hour wind gusts. Iowa was hit the hardest. The storm damaged or destroyed nearly 8,200 homes and flattened millions of acres of farmland. Hundreds of thousands of homes lost power. Tens of thousands are still waiting for the lights to come back on. And the storm took many Iowans by surprise. The National Weather Service had predicted a lower-grade, isolated weather event. But by the time a more severe storm warning was issued, most Iowans were only given about 30 minutes' notice. Beth Malicki reports for KCRG-TV9 in Cedar Rapids. And she says the biggest obstacle to recovery is that this is simply not a national news story. And Liz Lenz, a columnist for the Cedar Rapids Gazette, wrote an op-ed for The Washington Post saying the national media abandoned Iowa, that Cardi B's new single got more attention than Iowans who've been left without power or food after a natural disaster on top of a pandemic. 
Yeah, a lot of Iowans are frustrated with their leadership at all levels, federal, state, and local. Mm -hmm. And this week, the Trump administration approved a $4 billion relief fund through FEMA. But Maliki says FEMA's having trouble getting to people in need. Now, she's claiming FEMA officials were calling her and her colleagues up for information on where to find people in greatest need. She says that FEMA's turning to local journalists because they're unable to get through to local leaders. Maliki also talks about her reporting at a Cedar Rapids apartment complex that was destroyed by the storm. It's home to recently resettled refugees from the Democratic Republic of the Congo and from Micronesia. Many people there don't speak English and they don't know who to contact for help right now. Maliki describes a community there that is simply on its own. You can find links to all these stories in today's show notes page. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the show. We'll talk with you again tomorrow.